Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter. When Tim called me and asked me if I could fill in for him today, of course the first thing it was I was of which I was reminded was the special activities that were involved when we got to give our daughter away, and that is a very special time. Of course, ours was a bit longer ago than Tim's. But we do praise the Lord for the grandchildren that are the result. Book of Proverbs, remember the book of Proverbs? Grandchildren are the crown of the aged. Praise the Lord for living long. But he called me and asked me if I could come down here, and I had just started a study of the book of 1 Peter. So that gave me an opportunity to make that study into a sermon. That's what you will have today. It is our privilege to be reading the very Word of God, that which is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. It is God's Word. Therefore, out of respect and reverence for the Lord, Please stand for the reading of his word this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's commit our time to the Lord. Father God, we do thank you for the privilege of being able to open your word. We pray that you would guide us this morning. If need be, that you would convict us this morning. But feed us, dear Father that we might be what you want us to be. For it's in the glorious name of our great King that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As we look at this book, first of all, uh, we see that it was written by Peter. And so that's where we'll begin. Peter is the author. Uh, He's writing it to Christians who have been dispersed through Asia Minor. As we think in terms of the significance of the author, thinking back to the early days of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus passing by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist with his followers says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew obviously was touched by that, So he goes and gets his brother, Peter. And he brings Peter to meet Jesus. And it's within this context where Simon's name is changed to Peter. But keep in mind, it was the brother of Peter who brought him, a follower of John the Baptist. And when Jesus sees sees Simon Barjona, He says, I'm going to call you Peter, 
The Greek word is Cephas, which means a large detached stone, a rock. And that's symbolic of the firmness and the strength of Peter. Going to play a very special significance in just a minute. But this is the beginning of this time that Peter has with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 16, Jesus, who was probably halfway through his ministry, was sitting around with his disciples, and he asked them, who do the people say that I am? Uh, some say you're Elijah, prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist come, who's come back, because by this time, John the Baptist had been beheaded. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? Good old impetuous Peter jumps right on that. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus tells him, Simon, you didn't really know that. God revealed that to you. And this is the significant part. And upon that rock, I will build my church. Now, brothers and sisters, we understand proper exegesis. We understand that the rock was the statement that Peter made, not Peter. You don't build the church upon a human being. We know, of course, Peter, who told Jesus, you can depend on me the whole way. I'll be with you all the way. But what did he do when, he, when Jesus Christ was being humiliated in these false trials? Remember, he was the one who denied him three times. So you don't, can't build a church upon a human being. Praise God, when you come to the end of the book of John, where you see the beautiful picture of Peter's restoration. Peter, do you love me? You know I do. Feed my sheep. Three times. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? The restoration of Peter. But you don't build a church upon an individual. You build a church upon the statement, Jesus Christ, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's at that point that we have that foundation established because of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter was a vehicle. He became an apostle. Those who were set aside personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, an early leader in the church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, again, founded not on Peter, but upon the statement he made, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The significance of apostles, brothers and sisters, was because they were personally called by Jesus Christ and commissioned by him. They were eyewitnesses, as Peter tells us in his second letter, where he talks about the experience of being on the Mount of Transfiguration Peter, James, and John up here with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is transfixed his, or tra transfigured as the glory of God shines through him. Boy, that must have been a, some kind of experience to have, been a, to, to have been there, to have experienced something like that, and then to hear the statement, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter was an eyewitness 
But let me divert just a minute. Peter goes on to say, but we have something more sure. A light in the midst of darkness. When he says, talks about scripture. Scripture being written by men who were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word. This is what we stand on. And brothers and sisters, never you tire of hearing that and seeking to do that. We understand that the apostles in Acts chapter 2, when it describes the characteristics of the early church, one of the characteristics was a study of the Word of God, the apostles' teaching. So you have the importance of the apostles in the midst of, of the development of the church. So Peter the Apostle, to whom is he writing? The recipients of the letter are described as those elect exiles of the dispersion throughout Asia Minor. These are the areas that are listed. Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are the ones to whom this letter was directed. Elect makes reference to those who are picked out, who are chosen, those who have been set aside, the objects of God's sovereign and gracious choice. The phraseology of exiles is interesting. It refers to aliens, sojourners, aliens. Exiles. Have you ever thought of yourself as an E.T.? Now, brothers and sisters, that's what we are. The particular Greek word that's used here to describe exiles, aliens, sojourners, is a compound word that describes, the, the root word is living in a city alongside of heathen people. The alongside comes from a, pre a prefix that is added to that root word. And so it describes the picture of Christians who, remember, this is not our home, brothers and sisters. We are aliens. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you become a sojourner. You are moving toward your home, which is in heaven. This is described for us in Philippians chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 13. We are citizens not of this world. We are in it, but we are not of it. We're something different because we serve a different master. We're in the world, brothers and sisters, but we're not of the world. We are exiles. And we have to be so careful that we don't become so influenced by the world that we are like it. We're exiles. We're not residents here. We're temporary. We're just passing through. And that's the picture that Peter is painting here. You who are called to be what God wants you to be. He leaves us here to be faithful servants to be useful about kingdom business, and then when he's finished with us, he calls us home. This is not our home. We have been saved for service. 
May we never lose sight of that. The world is so subtle, so alluring, that if we are not careful, we can slip right into that thinking, right into that mentality. Brothers and sisters, we are different. We who love the Lord Jesus Christ are exiles, aliens, sojourners. We're just passing through. And may we be faithful in the business of serving the great king. Peter then says four things about these elect aliens. Number one, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We understand that biblically we are dead in our sins, in our trespasses. That there's no way we can save ourselves. There's no way we can merit salvation. No way we can work ourselves into God's relationship. Remember, we serve a God who created all things out of nothing in 24-hour time frames. We serve a God who is infinite and eternal and unchangeable. A God who is all-powerful. And he made us. And, 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 and oh, when you look at that Genesis 3 account, the process is just beautiful in terms of a man and a woman. And excuse me for a minute while I digress. It's Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. Tragically, we live in a rebellious culture. And we, we have to address that. We have to deal with that. And by God's grace, we are faithful to Scripture as we seek to be male and female. Awesome work of his hand. So in the midst of that, we can't save ourselves. We're without hope because of our sin. And yet God, in his infinite wisdom, even before the foundation of time, had chosen for himself a people. That's what the scripture teaches. God, in his grace, chose for himself a people. Now be careful. He didn't choose us because he knew we were going to be good. He chose us simply because he chose us. None of us would ever be good. There is no way we can merit salvation. No way we're good enough to deserve God's grace. God's grace is his totally. God's riches at Christ's expense. He chose for himself a people. That's the picture of foreknowledge. Turn to the book of Acts for a minute. Acts chapter 2. This is part of the great revival that takes place 
as the disciples are turned loose after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, verse 23 of Acts 2, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God had, even before the foundation of time, had chosen for himself a people. And the plan was already established in what was going to have to happen in order to save for himself a people. In terms of the finished work of his beloved son who walked upon this earth and lived a perfect life and died a horrible sacrificial death to deliver up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Verse 29, Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The gospel is God-centered, not man-centered. The gospel of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ alone is for God's glory and God's glory alone. And it's poured out upon those people whom he had chosen before they had done anything had chosen for himself a people. That doesn't mean that we are proud. That doesn't mean that we are the frozen chosen, as terms like to be thrown around. That simply means that for whatever reason God chose us, we didn't deserve it, we couldn't earn it. If we got what we deserved, we'd be burning in hell. But God, for whatever reason, only known within the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, set aside for himself a people. A people that he will use for his glory and his glory alone. The awesomeness of God's foreknowledge ought to drive us to humility than any sense of, oh, look what he did for me. No pride on our part. Humility. God, for whatever reason, made us his people. Praise God for that. We didn't deserve it. Couldn't earn it. But he did it. Secondly, going back to Peter, there's a sequence, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. The idea of sanctification is to set apart, to consecrate. The picture is the role of the Holy Spirit in reference to the sanctification process as it's the work of the Spirit 
that pierces the heart of the dead individual, though acting like he's living. And it's the role of the Spirit that sets apart that individual from sin. This is regeneration. This is faith. When we think back about the day in which our eyes were opened to the glory of our Lord and our need of a Savior. And let me share something real quick with you as, as I think about that day. Because I grew up knowing all the right answers, guys. Most of you knew my mom and dad. I remember giving my, my in college giving my testimony at the Baptist Third Union. Was, folks said it was good. I don't have a clue what I said. Because I didn't know the Lord. I knew about him. I knew all the right answers. President of Fellowship of Christian Athletes. But it wasn't until after I got out of college. Remember William Hill, PEF evangelist? One of the early leaders in the PCA. And within God's providence, in the most liberal Presbyterian church in North Alabama Presbytery, the old PCUSA, there was a strong Sunday school class that got Dr. Hill to do a revival service for us. And it was that Thursday night, brothers and sisters, and his text was Isaiah 6. You remember when Isaiah stands before the Lord? And Isaiah was a pretty good guy, you know, but he says, oh, woe is me, for I am undone. Regeneration. That's when the Holy Spirit grabbed me. That's when my eyes were opened. That's when my heart was changed. And in God's eyes, because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, I was totally sanctified. We know experientially that sanctification, while we're here on this earth, that sanctification is a process, a process of growth as we become more and more of what the Lord wants us to be. Now, it would be great if that process were merely a straight line up. But guys, because of our sin nature and because of the world in which we live, that chart looks more like the stock market. It's all over the place. Sometimes it's up here. Sometimes it's way down here. But... Ultimately, it's a process that's bringing us closer and closer to being what the Lord wants us to be, that we would be the faithful instruments that he desires for us to be. And this is the role of the Holy Spirit again. As we are gradually purified for God's service. Again, the second thing that we're said about these elect exiles in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Another interesting preposition, for, and this is the third thing, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Hmm. This is the picture 
of realizing that when we come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, when our eyes are open to our sin and we're broken because we have no hope other than God, we flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's the Holy Spirit drawing us and as we bow the knee before this great king, we begin the process of growth as we seek to obey what Jesus Christ told us that we're to do. We, be, we understand that we've been set aside for service, the service of the great king. And we bow the knee before this great king. But you know what's interesting about the obedience to this great king? In John 14, 15, by the way, great memory verse, easy to remember. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's to be the desire of our hearts. That's to be the driving force that motivates us as we live within this world that is seeking to destroy us. But as servants of the great king, we bow the knee before him and we rise and seek to live in obedience to what he says. If we confess that Jesus is Lord, brothers and sisters, it's demonstrated in our lives. Please understand, obedience is not what saves us. Obedience is the manifestation of our desire to serve the king whom we love. And we want to be what he wants us to be. In Ephesians chapter 1, Verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. Chosen for service, obedience to the great king. But then there's a fourth thing that Peter says. Remember, he's writing to the elect exiles in these different places, and he writes... Number one, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sovereign work of God in our salvation. Number two, in sanctification of the Spirit, the Spirit who changes our lives, the Spirit who guides us through the process of growth for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with his blood. Beautiful hymn this morning. Nothing but what? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Because of his finished work, we have been washed clean. And in God's eyes, we are spotless because of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
and being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, that means our sins have been taken away. How far? Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west. That allows us to enter into a covenantal relationship with the Father, sprinkling with His blood. When God established the covenant with Abraham, there was blood all over the place. Animals were slaughtered, created a path down which Abraham walked. Whenever you cut a covenant, you entered into an agreement with another person and you would walk down this path and the dead animals in all the blood, so it was a bloody sign, would, be, would basically bear testimony to the pledge that you make to this other person and you walk down that path together. When God cut that covenant with Abraham, Abraham was asleep on the side, you remember? Because Abraham couldn't keep his obligations within that covenantal relationship. And it was the glory of the Lord that went down the path between that blood. Because it's God who is faithful to his promise. And he established that covenant into which we are brought when we become believers. When we bow the knee before that great king. And we enter into that covenantal relationship. It is a bond of blood. That's what the covenant represented. That's what it stood for. And that's what's implied here as Peter is talking about this. And he remembers the story when, when, when Moses goes into the, excuse me, when, excuse me, it is Moses went, went into the temple and he slaughtered the animals and he came out and he had the blood and he sprinkled it to all the people who were out there. A symbolic of them being purchased by the blood. Of course, not everybody got hit by a drop of blood, but it was symbolic of what God had done, of the covenant that he had established. A covenant with his people. Elect exiles. Note one theological interesting bit about this paragraph the discussion of the Trinity God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in our salvation elect exiles we're just passing through this is not our home we're here because of the sovereign love of God and choosing for himself a people. The sanctification of the Holy Spirit that we might serve the great King who gave his life for us. And oh, may we live for him. Brothers and sisters, you heard my prayer about our country. You'd have to have your head buried in the sand and not see tragic things happening within our nation. Time for Christians to stand obedience to Jesus Christ. The beauty of the covenant 
a bond of blood. Blood that Jesus Christ shed. Let's pray.